Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up, journalist Porik O'Moran on how life took a different path when he stumbled across a book on mindfulness. He has now penned several of his own. Erica Drum on how to set yourself up to embrace home cooking and a recipe for what's in season right now. And cellist Gerald Peregrine and Professor Jim Lucy on the healing power of music and a partnership with the HSE, the first of its kind funding access to the arts through care concerts. So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I have to say I am basking in the glory of no school run this week with the Easter holidays. Myself and my husband are jaded parents who love their children more than anything, but still sometimes wonder if we should have been travel bloggers trekking around the world with just the clothes on our backs. But look, I wouldn't be here talking to you right now, would I? And like I say, We just needed a well-earned break from the hamster wheel of running here, there and everywhere. And speaking of slowing down, I was so caught up with my lost document saga from my laptop. Alas, the update is they could not be recovered. That I admitted to tell you about a lovely retreat I was on recently with Fiona Brennan, who was a regular on the show and it was called Manifest Magnificence and in it she spoke a lot about realising that we have it all already but allowing the space to really lean into that true authentic self and, and believe in ourselves and along with some great workshops by Fiona and a brilliant keynote from psychologist Louise Carroll about our authentic self we had slowing down practices like Qigong and a Chinese sound bath with Stuart Breen and a slow and silent walk. And this is what I really wanted to mention. We were in a place called the Avon, which is right beside the lake and woods. So off we all went for a walk. But it being silent, there was obviously no talking. And we were encouraged at sections to really slow down, to take in the sights and the sounds and the smells around us. And at one stage, we slowed down even more to match the in and out of our breath. Now, let me tell you, it was a challenge. Everything in you wants to speed up and power through and people walking by us because it was a a really nice Sunday. So there's lots of families and dogs and bikes. They all looked at us like we were insane. There was even a mention of the Blair Witch Project from one group passing us because in fairness, there was about a hundred of us all walking slowly and silently towards them. But when we got back, Fiona did a really good thing by asking us to check in with how we felt. And I have to say, there was this real sense of calm and aliveness from forcing ourselves to slow down, get out of our heads and into our bodies. So Perhaps it's not something you do on every walk you go on, but maybe at some stage when you're out on one, you might just stop, take out the headphones, take in the surroundings and just take a moment to soak it all in. Let me know how you find it. You can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Porik O'Moran is a mindfulness teacher and an author. His latest book is called Acceptance, Create, Change and Move Forward, which was released early this month. The book teaches us how to forge a path by accepting our current position. And Porik joins me in studio now. Porik, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. So for many of us, mindfulness and acceptance and all these terms are relatively new, but you've been practising all of this since the the late 80s. So you must have been quite a, a maverick at the time? I suppose I was. I was interested in, I suppose, psychology. And I came across a book on mindfulness uh, one day and when I was out skiving off from work, which I used to do when I worked in the Irish Times. And um, 
I went off to Eason's. I used to go around bookshops, really. And so I went off to Eason's and I found this book on mindfulness, which I'd never heard of. You didn't see books about that, you know, at the time. So I began to read it there and then, and I liked it. And uh, so I bought the book and I reread the chapter and I started doing it. I only finished reading the book a couple of years ago, so a long, long, long time later, because that was the late 1980s. And I found it that it was something that I liked doing. Um, sometimes if you're working in news, it's it's stressful, and just in terms of deadlines and talking to people who don't want to talk to you, etc. Um, and I was involved in, in union work as well with the NUJ. So therefore, I found it helpful to have something that just gave me a little step back in my head from things. And I kind of began to practice mindfulness, mindfulness from then on in a, pra- in a, what's the word, in a, in a practical sense, you know, a real-life, day-to-day sense. And I found, but as I went on, I found that it's, it's, mindfulness, as we all know, is, is being in the moment, is really returning to the moment. You don't get to stay there for very long. It's coming back to it again and again. But it's also acceptance. That is the other half of mindfulness is acceptance. And it is something that I think is underemphasized in the talk about mindfulness, but because it helps us to avoid struggling in our heads with things that we don't like, it can reduce our levels of stress an awful lot, acceptance. So when you don't like something that happened, often what you'll find is that you're going over and over it in your head, you're having scenarios in your head about it and conversations in your head about it, all sorts of dramatic scenes, and all it's doing is stressing you out. It's not the same thing as making a plan to deal with something. It's just going around, ruminating as they call it, just going around and around in this endless wheel. With acceptance, you step outside of that. You decide to step outside of it. You decide to let it be. And you come into... The moment are just into giving your awareness to what you're doing, you know? Yeah, and I am interested in getting into the book and the concept yeah. of, of acceptance in a moment. You've written yeah. five books, but I'm still yeah. fascinated with you in the 80s working in news in the Irish Times, yeah. working, you know, with the NUJ, as you say, yeah. um, and, and finding this this world. And sometimes I think, especially when I look at my my mum and how pragmatic she is and yet she consumes all the news. Yeah. She leans heavily into her faith. She knows what yeah. works for her. She knows what doesn't. But she doesn't tend to ruminate on things the way my yeah. own generation yeah. do. And it's interesting. It's 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 much better that we are a more open society, that we talk about our mental health, that we encourage people yes. if they're not feeling good, not to brush things under the carpet, to lean in and ask for help. But do you think sometimes like when you start picking at a sore, that, you know, you're doing more harm than good. Yes, definitely. I think that when you start, when you start reliving, rerunning stuff that you can't do anything about, um, I think that it just increases your levels of stress and of distress. And that can go on for years. Now, I'm not talking here about not going and having therapy where you talk about it. That's different. It's a different process. I'm talking about where you're reliving, reliving, reliving. And there's people who relive grievances for 20 or 30 years, you know. And it comes between them and their enjoyment of everyday life. Um, It's bad for your mental health because that kind of rumination, if you're feeling down, that kind of rumination can push it into a depression. If you're feeling angry about something, that 
kind of rumination could push it into a rage. Um, people involved in road rage incidents often were angry before they got into the car and have been ruminating on something as they drove along. And then something happens and bang. Um, so, or if you're ruminating on um, some slight, some maybe somebody that's very close to you said or did something that, that really annoyed you, but that really probably you should have let go by now. Um, and if you're ruminating on that, again, it, 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 it's toxic in the relationship. So ruminating too much, I think, is a, a problem and a danger. I sometimes wonder when I look at um, Twitter and other social media, is it almost a form of rumination often? You know, people say, oh, so angry that such and such a thing happened. Uh, terrible that so-and-so said this. It's almost like ruminating on it. Instead of saying, well, this is my, I have an opinion that I don't agree with this. But you can even ruminate then uh, on social media, but most of the rumination happens in, your, in our head. That's where it happens. And the thing is this, the thoughts that we have are physical in the sense that if you think stressful thoughts, thinking about something stressful from the past or future, uh, the adrenaline begins to flow. The uh, cortisol begins to flow. Your heartbeat goes up. All of these things are happening as part of a stress response because the part of your brain that that um, sort of scans for for threats, if you like, reacts to those stressful thoughts, almost as if they're happening now, um, even though you're talking about thinking about something from the past. Um, it, it reacts. You're, you're, you're not just having thoughts. You're actually going through a reaction. Yeah, well, and your body is responding and it's having an impact your on your yeah, health, yeah. your overall general yeah, sense of yeah. well-being yeah. and in some cases your health. So when you had that pivotal moment when you discovered mindfulness and read that book, how yeah. did you begin to bring it into your everyday life and change? I began to, first of all, I began to do some mindfulness practices, exercises, which was really just mindfulness of my breathing, really just for a few minutes at a time. and um, Would that be in the moment of a stressful situation or did you pick a time in the day that was for breathing? I'd usually do it in the morning. And um, as a daily newspaper journalist, at that time, with the time cycles at that time, the morning could be 11 o'clock in the morning, you know. But then I would do it. I would do it. Sometimes I would just, at lunchtime or something, I'd just go for a walk and just do a bit of mindful breathing. I wasn't a person anyway who tended to be in a crowd of people at lunchtime in the pub or something. Um, or before a meeting, you know, maybe before a union meeting or a negotiation, I'd often go for a walk and do my breathing. I never told anybody that, of course. Um, it didn't fit with the, with, the, with the image that you had to sort of project. But um, I would do it then. So, and it all helped to just calm things down so that I could go into this with... with um, what would I say, in a sort of a steady myself before I went in, yeah. And what sort of differences did you notice in your life, professionally and personally? I think, well, a, a big difference I noticed was that because the mindfulness meant that I no longer, if it was something that I was aggrieved about that had happened, I mean that somebody had done, you know, um, or said, or something that had happened that I didn't like, I didn't dwell on it as much, and that saved a lot of energy and a lot of unhappiness. So I didn't dwell on it much. I did what I could do, 
and then left it alone um, once I had done as much as I could do. So that was a big thing for me. Um, I would have been a person who would have gone over things, you know, a lot. And uh, so I stopped doing that, but kind of a, to a very large extent. That was a big difference. And then I think also that in relationships, I was able to come into just conversations and interactions without having had something going on in my head about something that happened the day before yesterday. And I was more present and I was also, I think, less likely to to get upset over something I didn't like. Now, sometimes, of course, you should get upset over things you don't like, but I'm talking about ordinary, everyday things, you know. Um, and so I think it helped me that way also, in a big way. And um, I think that as a parent then, I found that when the kids were growing up, there was this awareness that this phase is going to pass awfully fast and to deliberately just be very aware of it out of them, you know, because it does go by pretty quickly. And um, it mightn't feel like that at the time, but it does. <laughs> and uh, so it helped me in all of those different ways. So it, both making positive things, having a greater awareness of positive things, and not being caught up so much in negative things. Yeah, and it's bringing that awareness to everything, isn't it? And being present, because so many of us sleepwalk through life because it is so busy and because the alarm goes off and the school run happens or the commute to work happens and you just keep going and going and going without really realising and stepping back from certain things. So when did you make the change, the, the jump from news journalism to mindfulness is going to be my life's work to teach this to other people and, and, and this is going to be the, the, the subject of my writing. Well, I had done a psychology degree with the Open University and then I did some counselling, a counselling training course simply because I was interested, that's all. Then the Irish Times had a big redundancy programme around 2001 um, and I was one of the people who negotiated on the part of the, behalf of the staff without ever thinking that I was going to take this uh, the, this opportunity myself. And then, to my immense surprise, I decided that I would. And I then went into doing some counselling work and then from there also to teaching counsellors and to teaching mindfulness, to running mindfulness workshops, mostly for people involved in therapy work and stuff like that. And then I gradually was able to spread it out to more public, general public audience, and then the interest in mindfulness began to grow anyway. So it just happens that I was in the right place at the right time also. And uh, so people began to be interested and I began to just to write about it, books and blogs and all that kind of thing. And um, yes, yeah, so, so I, I sort of, it was a pure coincidence that I got into mindfulness and interested in it just as it was about to sort of take off, you know. And I'm really picked up on a word you said there about your redundancy from the Irish Times. You yeah. said an opportunity. Yeah. And many people could really lament that, the years of service they'd given and how could they be treated in this way. And, you know, yeah. it keeps us safe sometimes to hold those grudges and to step back from something and, and, and ruminate on it, like like you said, whereas you took it as a positive, as an opportunity, and it's opened all these different different doors to you. Yeah, it's because there was there was the difference. I mean it was a voluntary scheme. It was a good a good deal. Um and so it was attractive to quite a lot of people. 
and we were quite like after following the negotiations, we were quite sure that a lot of people would take it and take a sort of a new a new path. And like the Irish Times had had been around since about eighteen fifty or something like this. So now the staff hadn't been around since then, but a lot of people had accumulated a lot of years. So they got a good deal, and people saw it then as a way of of doing something different, I think. And I saw it, began to see it as a way of doing something different. I also sort of said to myself, well, I don't know if I really want to do this until I hit retirement age, you know, um, so maybe I will do something else. So that was it, but it's different, obviously. If, if it's a forced and somewhat unfair redundancy, that's a different story, um, a completely different story. And you're going to feel wounded and hurt and a point may come when you need to to accept that this happened and life was unfair. Now what's next? What do I do next? Um, and that's where mindfulness and acceptance help a lot with that um, because if you can't accept it, it's like a wound that keeps on hurting you, you know? And we sometimes think that when something bad happens, I've got to keep thinking about it. I owe it to myself to keep thinking about what these people did. But maybe I owe it to myself to not keep thinking about it. These people may be off on the golf course or on a cruise for all I know, but uh, <laughs> they're not worrying about me Yeah, thinking bad thoughts about them. And uh, uh, So maybe sometimes I owe it to myself to not keep thinking about these things. We often don't realise that we do have choices to a large extent not completely, to a large extent, about our thoughts. And our reactions. And our reactions. Yeah. Yes, we do yeah. have choices. And was there any part of you that was reticent to talk about this change you were going down? I mean, you mentioned going to meetings and going for walks yeah. and breathing and, and not saying it because of the image. And there is the stereotype about men and talking about their feelings. Did yeah. you get any kickback from people who thought, geez, what's Porrick up to now? I didn't really because I suppose I only talked about it to people the colleagues like Mary Marr, who who was a colleague of mine at the time, and she she, um, she would be into all that kind of thing. She once wrote a forty-part series about types of of psychology, psychological self-help. So she was into that kind of thing. So I really only talked about it to people who were interested in it. And um, other than that, I didn't really uh, until after I left, and I was and when books came out and so on, but. Uh, no, I didn't really. Um, it wasn't unprecedented, unheard of in Irish journalism. I recall a colleague called Lloyd Smith when I did some work in the Irish press, no longer with us, I mean the Irish press, Lloyd would go and meditate in the toilets in the Irish press, which was unprecedented. He may have been the only person, the only journalist in the world who did that. Um, so it wasn't unheard of. But at the same time, you wouldn't necessarily go around talking about it or... Yeah, well, I hope you know, Lloyd would be happy to hear that in many corporates now there's a, a wellness department, there's a meditation room and it would have taken him out of the bathroom and into the more mainstream. We were talking before we, we came in here to record about modern life and that was partly the reason you wanted to write this book yeah. on acceptance because there has been a lot and is a lot going on from... Yeah the pandemic, to war, to climate crisis, to energy crisis, to housing crisis. So to live in the midst of all these crises, acceptance is going to be key, you say? I think it is absolutely key. We've had practice 
we've had a couple of years of practice of acceptance with lockdowns um, hit by all this unprecedented stuff. So we've we've had lots, loads of practice. Then there was the war, there's recession, not recession, but inflation, the homeless crisis, which I think plays on people's mind a lot. Uh, um, and so all of these things happening, climate change, we haven't actually really had time to think about that yet, but anyway, climate change. And um, so there's a lot of acceptance that you need to do, I think, in the sense of not not going over and over in your head in a very dramatic, catastrophizing kind of way, saying this is a catastrophe, because there's only so much that you can take. And being able to... So if I was feeling, let's say, stressed out about, let's imagine, climate change, for example, um, if I catastrophize about that, I it would be almost impossible to get out of bed in the morning. So what I need to do is to accept that things are that way, but there are other people who are doing something about it and maybe to put my support behind them, whether that's direct support or political support or whatever it might be. Um, So it's moving. With acceptance, you move to what's next, what's the next thing. Uh, And it's actually a part of human... human, um, nature anyway, that we tend to move on to whatever is next. And with acceptance, you get to ask yourself what's next and to do it. What's next might be um, to uh, do something about the issue, or it might be just to do something completely different. Um, I had one example that, that, that I sometimes use is if you've got somebody who is a servant to her adult children, say, they're living at home and she has to do everything, the whole lot, everything. And she's fed up with this and she's tired of it. So just accepting that she is actually acting like an unpaid servant then brings up the question, what do I do next? Well, she could just leave the leave the, the clothes lying there on the floor, etc., which is a way to deal with it, but it's going to really bug her. Or she could just go off on a holiday somewhere. You know, she could go out and play golf or something. I hope the Irish mammy's listening to take that on board, but I I don't know if there's any can leave dirty washing (laughs) on the floor. I know, it's a a big ask, yeah. (laughs) You're very passionate about sharing this message with people through your books, through your writing. And now social media is a big part of it. I find it hard to navigate in my 40s. How do you find social media? I find social media... I think that with social media, often what I do is I, I follow the people who more or less agree with me. I think that's what we all do, really. <laughs> and that's what, of course, locks us into our separate silos, as they say. Um, and so I tend to follow that a lot. I tend to use social media as a way of finding links to articles that I want to read, etc. So I'm not getting into huge fights with people about things. Um, I, I do use social media to to project the, the, the messages about mindfulness. Um, and I have a person who helps me with that. And so I use it in that way. But yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of it in the sense I quite like. But I tend to use it really as more of finding out other sources of information and of what's going on, rather than the thing in itself. But I'm aware, though, that it has a hypnotic effect, 
when you see when you see the police or guardie standing on the street scrolling through their phones, you know that social media is kind of it's almost hypnotizing. Yeah, <laughs> or a group of teenagers to sitting together and yet looking at their yeah, phones. Yes. It is a, a very different world. Well, I want to give people your Instagram handle. It is Porik O'Moron. The book is called Acceptance, Create, Change and Move Forward. Porik O'Moron, thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you very much, Claire. That was great. Thank you. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Now, something I really wanted to feature a bit more on the show was food because we do tend to sometimes talk in health and wellness about nutrition and it sounds like this big weighty thing that we should be afraid of or that we need great skills to master. But actually, if you just start embracing cooking a few meals from scratch at home, that's a major step forward in your health and well-being. So we needed a guide to traverse through this and no one better than Erica Drum, the conscious cook. And she joins me in studio now. Erica, I'm right, am I? Sometimes people really get confused because there's so much noise out there about what a healthy diet is. 100% Claire, and thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this. Yes, it come back to basics, bring it back to, I always say eat the rainbow and I know that's hard, Irish uh, food sometimes, but really, you know, try and keep a variety. But cooking at home is the best thing you can do in comparison to anything else, really, when it comes to your health. And it's not also the mentality of cooking too gives you a nice, healthy feeling um, and wellness for your mind and your body when you're nourishing it. So. So you're going to come on every few weeks and give us a recipe and you have a recipe today. But because this is the first one, we wanted to kind of say, how can you set yourself up to be a decent home cook? What do you need to have in your house to be able to embrace home cooking? Yeah, I think it's it's really important to start with the tools. Now, we, we talk about it when, you know, fitness and running and you can go out and buy the best runners and, and not actually, you know, go running or whatever way. <laughs> but it, and that happens to all of us. We do do that. So, so. Don't feel like you have to have all the the equipment and all the jazz to start cooking. Really, it's simple. A knife that you, I think a knife is actually my number one advice for everybody. Um, Because I've watched people chop really badly, not their fault, but because the knife is inadequate or something like that or their chopping board. So um, that would be my biggest thing is to, to try and find yourself a knife that you are happy to cook with. And are you going to find that now in the kind of homeware section of a department store or, you know, even a supermarket now? Or do you need to invest in a chef's knife? I think it depends where you're at, right? If you want to um, really take this on or do you want to start cooking again or maybe COVID, you know, sprung you on to cooking again a bit more, then yes, go into somewhere like, actually I did a bit of research on it a few years ago, the cheapest place for these knives that I, I love, which is um, two German brands, Wusthof or Zeeling, Willing, it's very hard to pronounce. Um, a chef's knife is usually quite a big knife and they're about 100, 120 euro. Now it is expensive, but it's an investment. They have, you know, they're very sturdy and they will literally last you forever. They've, they're a kind of all purpose knife. Um, but actually, you could bring it back to something like uh, Victorinox, which is the Swiss makers of the Swiss Army knife. They have a serrated knife, which I first picked up about 10 years ago in my local hardware shop. And it's about a tenner. It's a serrated knife. They call it a tomato knife or sometimes you might see it known as an onion knife. And I wouldn't normally recommend using a serrated knife that you'd have for steak or whatever at home when you're cooking. But these ones are created 
so that they fly, they softly go through tomato skin, which can often be quite hard with a sharp knife if your knife isn't sharpened properly. So the serrated knives don't need as much care. You don't need to be sharpening them or whatever. And they are super cheap. That would be my biggest number one to do tomorrow because you're, you're max spending 20 quid on two of them, maybe one with a little point and one with the round top. So the brand there is Victorinox. There's no association. I just am very happy using them. I'm very happy telling people to use them um, and the value for them is really good. So once you start with a good knife, you, you're less stressed, I think, you know. Yeah, because the chopping is easier. Yeah. You can kind of, you know, have veg that's chopped as it's supposed to in the recipe. Yeah. You also recommend a decent grater, a chopping board, having good pots and pans, which most people have. I mean, do we have to have an, a non-stick frying pan? Um, you don't have to have a non-stick frying pan, but it is... Helpful, especially for not getting annoyed when things stick. But we can't. There are other ways of making things not stick. For example, if you're doing um, a steak or a burger or something or a piece of chicken breast, those sort of things need a little bit of time on a really hot pan to create their own kind of barrier against sticking. So actually, they are perfect on something like go root in. You know, you're old, someone in your family who has loads of pots and pans and don't even look in their presses. Some sort of cast iron dish that's been around for years or invest in one again. They, they, you can get them now in most supermarkets, middle aisles, I've seen them lately. They are last forever situations as, as well, which is fantastic. They will hold their heat for much longer. Uh, yeah, they're more expensive. Maybe they're 35 quid instead of a flimsy nonstick pan that might be 8 euro, 10 euro in a month's time, that's buckling, which is where it goes up in the middle. That's if you put a hot pan under cold water straight away or even warm water and you hear that sizzle of your pan. Some of us might enjoy that sound. Actually, you're damaging your pan. You're getting that buckle in the middle part. So yeah, that would be, you can get a nice cast iron or a nice non-stick pan, treat it well, mind it, you know, don't put it under cold water. But my bigger thing would be to get yourself a cast iron pan. Yeah, so that you have that and you have everything at your disposal and also on the list, um, some of the devices like a good processor, even a Nutribullet, and there's all kinds of different ble- or brands of that. Yes. Uh, a wooden spoon and a silicone spatula. So let's get to the recipe today. You're you are sustainable, so you know you do suggest that we cook in season and and buy local. So what is the recipe you've you've got for us today? Thanks, Claire. Yeah. So I I'm doing a chicken and orzo bacon. Now the chicken could be mushroom or tofu or something instead if you if you prefer. But ideally this dish can bring in anything in season at the moment. I love asparagus which is in season um, or coming into spinach. So um, we've got our kind of bok choy or our kale as well that can go into it. This is a one dish wonder. It goes in, it starts on the frying pan and into the oven. You forget about it. You could do it in your slow cooker as well actually. Be perfect. Um, Really tasty. It's got lemon, feta and parsley on top so it's taste of spring summer vibes it's really good so is there somewhere people can find this on your site to follow it yes so that would be on my Instagram page at drums underscore kitchen does it take long or is this a no, quick 30 one? minutes all in one dish chicken gets seared with a little bit of um, smoked paprika oregano and coriander which kind of gives that floral flavours really delicious and then in that same pan we've got a leek or an onion if you like garlic the actual orzo pasta goes in but that could be risotto rice if you have that to hand as well and then you pour the stock in on top and put it in the oven. So there's not stirring. There's none of that. The chicken goes back on, the lid in and done in 30 minutes. Really Yum. tasty, yeah. A beautiful spring dish. Yeah. Erica, where can people find you? So again, at Drums Kitchen on Instagram and uh, ask me any questions. Well, I love getting asked foodie questions and I can help as much as I can.
Brilliant. Well, I'm delighted you're on board. You'll be back in a few more weeks with more deliciousness. Thank you so much as ever, Erica Drum. Thanks, Claire. Alive and kicking on News Talk. Back in April 2021, I got an email asking if I'd be interested in speaking with cellist Gerald Peregrine. We were in the grip of the pandemic and Gerald had begun bringing other musicians and singers together to perform in the gardens of nursing homes and hospitals all over the country to bring music to patients, residents and care staff. Now, I can honestly say that it was one of the most moving interviews I have ever had in my career and it still stays with me to this day. There was a story of a woman lying in her bed in a nursing home who hadn't spoken a word for a very long time and when the nurse came in to check on her and the music was flowing through the window she said that's lovely music which really attests to the healing power that it has. Well Gerald is back the concerts have continued as the pandemic abated and the venues reopened and he's recently secured funding in a first of its kind with recognition of health and the arts and he joins me in studio now along with Professor Jim Lucy, clinical professor of psychiatry and author of many books including A Whole New Plan for Living, another man whose words stayed with me long after we stopped recording when he came on to talk about that book. Well, you're both very welcome. Thank Thank you very much. And how incredible how two interviews that really do stay with me, that the two of you could be connected. And I understand you go way back. You're you're friends for a long time. Yes, we do. I mean, Gerald has made a huge contribution to well-being through his music. And uh, Dublin is a small place we were friends in any way and then we discovered we both shared this interest so it's been fantastic to watch what he's done and what he's brought to the well-being the mental health the, the, the general recovery uh, through the COVID time and uh, the situation was desperate and this was really a light a light, a light bulb that, that, that really shone when others didn't uh, it made a huge difference to lots of people and Gerald even before the care concerts you had a real interest in the healing power of music, didn't you? That's right. I had been focusing primarily uh, with my company on bringing uh, music pre-station workshops into underprivileged schools, um, schools with lesser access, and showing through fun and informative workshops the power of music for our emotional well-being and um, how music is a part of our everyday lives. From the moment we wake up, you hear the birds singing, and uh, it's it's right there through your tough times or good times and to help children understand that it's a a tool for healing and for wellness and um, I was playing in nursing homes from a very young age. One of my earliest memories, I was in uh, New York with my uncle, the tenor Frank Patterson and I was living there with him for a while. I was only 11 and he dressed me up in a dicky bow and a tails with my cousin Ain on and we went to do a concert in a local residential nursing home. So it was something I always did uh, along my journey as a musician because um, it was a nice way to reach people. And as part of our education work, we'd always pop in and do a concert in the local area. So when the pandemic hit and I saw everybody else going online, I was really craving the live music and the live performance and actually one of the first performances was for my neighbours and then immediately after that we went to St John of God's Hospital which is just up the road and it was a beautiful summer's day and we were able to play for everybody in the garden and personally I had this real uh, moment, I think I was on the verge of tears because I realised the power of what music can give us and we'd all been missing that for a couple of months so... Uh, that's what gave me the idea to just come up with this plan. And we've done now 1,800 concerts in 23 counties, which is hard to 
believe now when I look back and all, we've been so fortunate. Some of the best musicians in Ireland agreed to do this. And I think everybody was looking for something to do. And we were very fortunate in that Creative Ireland. And, and now for the first time, the Department of Health contributed uh, resources to this project. And I think this is really a growing area because our population is ageing and it's a question of how do we age well and um, what's going to keep us healthy in our communities. There was one great story because we expanded to playing in daycare centres. So they were only really coming back after the vaccines. And a lot of these people have been really socially isolated. They weren't in the nursing homes or the hospitals. They were just sitting at home. And there was this lady in one of the daycare centres in Wexford. We had Anthony Kearns, a tenor. And I don't think she knew what to expect, but she was laughing like a schoolgirl all the way through the concert. She was so happy. And so I had to go down and talk to her. And she was 84 and she lived on a farm and she'd lost her husband six months prior. And all her children were living abroad, so they couldn't visit her during the pandemic. And she said to me, do you know, before I came here, my heart was in my boots, but I'm wearing it like a crown now. And she said, I can't wait for the next concert. I never imagined I'd get this experience. So that just was a small glimpse of what that did to her and it gives us so much in return. So it's just a sample of what we're experiencing along the way. And you've so many stories like that. I was Tears came to my eyes reading some of the case studies on your website of another man who, when he heard the opera being sang outside, he had always loved that music but had never seen it performed live. And there is this gap between some people and the arts that it's considered to be elitist or only for a particular type of person or maybe money or other things stand in their way but you're about closing that gap which I think is so important. It's about quality of access because art belongs to all of us and um, if the pandemic showed us anything is how central it is to our lives. I mean none of us would have done as well mentally in the first few months of lockdown if we didn't have our books and our music and our films and our TV and all of that's created by artists. And so it's about closing that gap. And there are hundreds of thousands of people who, because of their age or their disability or their family circumstances, that that, that just fades from their lives as they get older. And that shouldn't be the case. Art shouldn't be contained to specific venues or specific places. And I, I do believe that we can provide this service and, and, and um create access for those people who really need it the most. And this is an incredible coming together. I often think health and wellness are almost pitted against each other. Like health is the proper solid stuff and wellness is this absolute faff. And there is some faff involved in it and people who are just looking to make a book. But essentially they work in tandem, don't they, Jim? Oh, there's no doubt about that. The well-being is the holistic, the unification of all these things. I mean, we all have mental health to care for. And what do they say in the, in the musicals? When words fail, you know, you feel a song coming on. So music is that thing that transcends so much. It's our, one of the first senses we experience in the womb. It's the last we let go of at the end of life. It's really something that is sustaining of our well-being. And without sound, without melody, without rhythm, without the consciousness that... Uh, extends beyond us, which is a well-being consciousness that music can bring. We're really, really impoverished. And the, the, the sense that Gerald and his, his colleagues filled that gap for so many people is very real. But it tells us a lot about what we need to understand about mental well-being, that it is 
a universal, a need that's part of our humanity and something that we have to work together to fill and that in many respects the arts fill like no other area. Healthcare has tended, and this isn't the subject here, but it has tended to focus on disease and disorder and, and decline, whereas well-being, uh, and the arts speaks to this, uh, transcends that and brings our health consciousness to recovery, to positive feelings of our, our shared humanity, our shared, shared journey. Gerald talks about the society getting older. Yes, and it's living more fully, more connectedly, more hopefully and for longer when it has music, when it has the arts. And so we, we really can't divide these things any longer and have a real sense of being involved in health unless we have a sense of what it is to be well. And Gerald has made a huge contribution and, and it's really quite something that, that isn't replicated elsewhere. He's very modest about it, but way back he was looking at studies, uh, I remember one st- study that really crossed my mind, study he did looking at recovery times in uh, Tala Hospital in some of the most challenged areas of, of illness there, showing that the introduction of music into the recovery space actually enhanced the well-being and the, the, the outcomes for people who were going through quite difficult times. This isn't sort of happy-clappy, as you said. It isn't exploitative. This is actually based not just in humanity, but in real science, real experience of well-being. There's another area that tends to be split off. This is actually an intervention which is, in a sense, a scientific, medical, clinical intervention. And why should it not be? Actually, the arts makes that difference to our well-being. And you're bringing hope, aren't you, Gerald, which is such an important part of our wellness, of our recovery. I mean, you're dealing with people at really tough times in their life. And many people have said to you that they almost felt like they'd been forgotten. And this brought this new, renewed sense of of hope to them. Well, what was lovely, especially during the early stages of the pandemic, when uh, people were totally cut off from their families. And yes, we have the Internet, but many People aren't able to use the internet in a meaningful way. Um, So what was lovely was we'd turn up and pitch outside of our tent and the staff would film the concerts and they'd they'd go around taking videos of of the residents listening through the windows and they were able to share that content then with the family members say, look, all is not perfect, but this is happening here and this is what we're doing to help lift the spirits and we would return to many of the same places again and again so that we could build up a relationship with individuals and then once we were able to move inside the homes we were able to get to know people on a personal basis and hear their stories and you know it would be great I remember turning up somewhere with Neve Kavanagh and they'd gone to the trouble of making big collages and posters welcoming Neve Kavanagh and it was something they'd been thinking about and looking forward to and they'd been watching our videos and listening and so there was a sense of anticipation and, and excitement and um, in terms of what Jim was saying about wellness uh, I remember very early on we played on the psychiatric ward down in Waterford Hospital and uh, Dr Denise Rogers told us that she got a communication from the staff that that night was like Christmas Eve on the ward. There wasn't a peep. And she said it was better than any medication or mm. any pill that they could have given them. Mm. There was just this sense of calm and serenity. And to think that something so simple as music, and I suppose not just the music, but the fact that we came, we heard so many times, uh, it was a lovely story, we turned up with the wonderful Jerry Fish in a nursing home and it was 11am on a Tuesday morning and one of the young staff members she got very excited she said oh you look just like that singer Jerry Fish oh I love Jerry Fish he's my favourite singer I know you're not Jerry Fish but I love Jerry Fish I'm sure you're very good too 
and he didn't say anything. And um, <laughs> then I introduced, and our guest singer today is Jerry Fish, and she jumped out of the chair and squealed. She said, Mary, it's Jerry Fish. <laughs> and she rushed up for a hug. But she couldn't understand why Jerry Fish was there in her nursing home. But why shouldn't he be there? He wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. We wanted to be there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's that sense of placing value in people and that they're not forgotten. And often there's a very difficult transition from home life into a nursing home. There's one example of a man, he had been a bachelor living with his brother on the farm all his life and he was in his late 80s and the brother died and he'd been in the home a month and he he didn't leave his room for a month. He was so down in his boots and so uh, John Spillane turned up and the nurse said, come on now, we're going to have a glass of, of Prosecco and you'll really enjoy this. No, I'm not going. And anyway, the music started, the toes started tapping. Five minutes later, he was there. He said, well, I'll just sit for a few minutes. (laughs) And it was the breakthrough that they needed for Mm. him to socialise. So it's it's really amazing how effective a tool it is. And it's it's very cost effective as a tool. I mean, it's it's not an expensive intervention. uh, And, uh, you know, we're just able to turn up and and meet the needs in, in the moment, which I think is really special. Such an incredible endorsement of the healing power of music that these concerts are going to continue to be funded. Um, And I think it's a real mind shift for all of us how important the arts is to our well-being. So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week. My thanks to all my guests, to my producer Aoife Breen and to Hugo De Silva-Scott who was on sound and thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking on News Talk.